Let's crack the code of the Ipcris file, a classic spy film that is on the British Film Institute's BFI 100 list of 100 of the best British films of the 20th century, coming in at number 59. So let's go. Hi, this is Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us each episode as we're cracking the code of spy movies. Subscribe to our show, tell your friends about us, and give us a great rating on your favorite podcast app. Thanks. The Ipcris file is such an important entry into the spy movie genre that we're going to do this podcast in two parts. All right, we're going to focus on a few areas of the movie that hopefully will enhance your viewing the next time you take a look at the Ipcris file. The Ipcris file came out in 1965, and really there are a lot of Bond connections here with the Ipcris file, as we know. Harry Salzman was the producer, who was a co-producer of some of the Bond films early on with Cubby Broccoli. Peter Hunt is the editor. Ken Adam, who's the production... Oh, wait, now, Peter Hunt, he actually directed on Her Majesty's Secret Service and did editing on the first few Bond movies. Ken Adam, production designer, and Norman Wanstall. Oh, yeah, now, he actually won an Academy Award the year before for the work he did on Goldfinger. And in this movie, the brainwashing, that goofy sound that yes. you hear. Yeah, it's a scary sound. He asked BBC Radio Phonics Workshop to create the sounds, and they did. Those guys also did the laser sounds in Goldfinger. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And cool. Dan, there were a bunch of other people from the crew. I don't think we need to go into the list of them all, but there were probably five or six others that were involved in this movie that were also involved in Bond movies. Yeah. So there's some connections there with the Bond stuff. But is Harry Palmer the key spy here anything like bond a little maybe but not a lot not much all right so we got michael <laughs> they designed Caine. him to be the anti-bond yeah kind of i i don't know if he's really an anti-bond but he, he's definitely an anti-glitz kind of guy that's for sure and michael Caine's harry palmer major dalby played by nigel green terrific oh, he was he was really good yeah guy dolman plays ross he's colonel ross major basically Harry Palmer's boss in the beginning. And of course, Guy Dolman will remember was Count Lippe in Thunderball. Which was the podcast we just did. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of other great people in this movie. Audrey Richards playing Radcliffe and Frank Gatliff was terrific, I think, as Blue Jay, Grantby, and a, a, a number of others. Gordon Jackson as Jacques Carswell. Terrific. All right. Oh, he's great in everything he does. Yeah. You know, Dan... I just wanted to say this up front about a scene where Harry Palmer is making some coffee in the title sequence. Yeah. On the director's commentary, which we'll talk about later, Sidney J. Fury, the director, and Peter Hunt, the editor, they talk about that before this movie came out, product placement wasn't really a thing, right? You didn't see that in a lot of movies where there was product placement. I mean, they had a perfect opportunity in this movie with the supermarket scene to do it. And they really didn't use, didn't really do no, product placement there. They did not. But during the title sequence, Charlie Casher, who was an executive producer for this film, he wanted that coffee scene where Harry was using that coffee press yeah, yeah, to yeah. make the coffee. Yeah, the meticulous part. Yeah. And then he pours the coffee out of it. He wanted it there because Casher actually had an investment in that company oh, with the coffee maker. Okay. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. really right. one of the first examples of product placement where the executive producer was making money off of that thing selling. Okay. So they put it in the movie. But wait, uh, th there are many things written about product placement in James Bond movies, even 
even the early ones, Tom. I mean, for example, in Dr. No, one article says Bond opted for Red Stripe Beer. Red Stripe Beer was all over the place in Dr. No, you know, all the cases of it when he's fighting. And Pan Am, Pan American Airlines, which is no longer in business, they became pretty much a long, started a long stint with the Bond films all the way really through License to Kill in 1989 from 1962. So they were in there. And of course, <laughs> Smirnoff Vodka made an appearance. So there were some product placements even early on. But anyway, it's an interesting story with the coffee yeah, guy, though. That's... Well, speaking of coffee, Tom, you know, I just love coffee, right? You love your coffee. Yeah. And <laughs> of, oftentimes I'm drinking some while we're recording our podcast. So I ran across this special coffee called Spy Coffees. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, really. So I was intrigued and I ordered some. So I, I use a curry coffee machine. With, okay, so you need the K-Cups. Yeah, with the individual K-Cup pods. And they have a blend called Double Agent Medium Roast. <laughs> nice. Yeah. They have a whole bean, and they've got ground coffees too, like Spy Master Dark Roast, Agent Blend Light Roast, and so on. So I have to say, it was delicious. It was light and smooth and had a really nice aroma. So I finished my first box, which, by the way, it comes with 12 in a box, Unlike a lot of the Keurig pods that come with 10 in a box. Oh, yeah. they Yeah, you either get like 10 in a box or like 96 or something crazy yeah. like that. Yeah, usually it's 10, sometimes yeah. as well. Anyway, Spy Coffee's Keurig box comes with 12. And wow, Spy Coffee's. So I thought this would be a great sponsor for our podcast show. So I contacted the owner and he said, sure. <laughs> so now you could order some up. And I'm drinking some right now, as a matter of fact. He's got a great logo great coffee and it's terrific so you can order some up now and tell them spymovienavigator.com sent you but wait shh tell them the secret code spynav s-p-y-n-a-v for spy movie navigator spynav spynav and you will get a 20 percent discount shh That's keep awesome. it quiet so there you go. So, so Dan, where can somebody go get some of this? Hey, go to spycoffees.com. And remember, shh, the secret code, SPYNAV. SPYNAV. Yeah. Oh, product placement. The great stuff. Spy Coffees is for real. All right, let's get back to the movie. So Harry Palmer is a little like Bond. He's, he gets things done in unconventional ways. And he's described by Colonel Ross, his boss, as insubordinate, insolent, a trickster, perhaps with criminal tendencies. Now, this is okay. There you go. And he is a womanizer, like Bond. You could see him throughout the film, checking out women, legs. Oh, I, th I think he's more of a womanizer than Bond. <laughs> yeah, and there's a few lines in the movie where he's, he says, I love birds, which he's he, women. So, Well, that was the... <laughs> the time they were trying to be hip London at that time. And yeah. unfortunately how they referred to women back then. Yeah. So Harry Palmer is, is not this kind of bond guy, which is loyalty to King queen and country and so on. But there's a little background on Harry Palmer. That's kind of different. Yeah. Well, what, one of the things is where bond was, they recruited and they said they like to recruit orphans yeah. for MI six in the bond series. For here, that's not what they went for. They went for more gritty. And Harry actually was in the military. Yeah. And he got in trouble. Yeah. 
And they told him either you can be a spy or you can go to prison. Yeah, now we don't know oh. what the trouble is in the movie. Yeah, they never they never say it in this movie. And I didn't read the book by Len Dayton. Yeah, then Len Dayton wrote it. Yeah. But in this movie, Harry's really a reluctant spy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He he didn't he didn't want to do this. This was just go to prison or do this. Yeah. And I read I read a really interesting book by Wesley Britton. He's got a book called Beyond Bond that talks about how spies in TV and film are portrayed in the different characters. And he talks about Harry Palmer's role here as a reluctant spy and how that really gave credence to the TV show It Takes a Thief okay. or the movie La Femme Nikita, where you had people who were coerced into becoming spies. I'd add, this wasn't in the book, but I'd add that Naya in Mission Impossible 2, she was a thief mm-hmm. and they pretty much just made her do the spy stuff for them. Yeah. So again, yeah. she was more of a reluctant spy than a, a, oh, I'm signing up to become part of MI6. Yeah, and it's a good point on Mission Impossible because the Ipcris file actually came out in 1965, a year before the Mission Impossible TV series. So yep, pretty absolutely. good. So anyway, we've got code names in here too, Sparrow and House Martin and so on. So you, you have a different kind of a movie though here than we've seen with Bond, even though we got Harry Saltzman who's producing this movie. So you would think, hey, you're going to do some Bond kind of things here. It's really, it's it's a tough movie to follow, number one. We, we followed it closely and took notes on this movie through many viewings. And it's about... And, and it took a few, because it's confusing at first. Yeah, it's about British agents on the trail of someone or something that is causing a brain drain on their top scientists. And in the past two years, too many government scientists have left their jobs at the peak of their careers. And they cease to function as scientists, which is the weird part here. 126 of them left in the last two years. 107, they say, had good reasons to, better facilities, better pay, and so on. But three defected to the other side. The other 17 with this guy, Radcliffe, who now has disappeared in the beginning of the movie from the train, none of them had good reasons to leave. So now they're, they're, they're curious as to what the heck is going on. And Radcliffe did not quit, as Dalby says. He was lifted, which means he was kidnapped. So the key thing here is the words, they cease to function. Something is interfering with their normal brain operations as a scientist. Otherwise, they're normal, that the scientific ability of theirs seems to be drained for some reason. Or just yeah, no, we, we saw, we saw Yeah, we saw this in the movie when Radcliffe, he was supposed to give a, a speech on that proto-proton scattering device. Yeah, I love that. Yes. And you saw he became non-functional while he was doing that speech, but he was talking fine when they were going into the room and they were kind of just chatting yeah. away as they went. Yeah, normal day functions was fine. So the British agents are trying to get to the bottom of this brain drain and to find out what is happening. That's what the movie's about and trying to find how do we stop this? They had just lost Radcliffe to a kidnapping and they want to get him back at all costs. They have a lead, a Grantby guy, who they want to track down. So Palmer, who's now working for Dalby, is on the case as well as many other agents. He develops a relationship with a couple of these agents, this guy Jock Carswell and Jean Courtney, a woman. Yeah, go figure. He's <laughs> Yeah. He just sits right down next to her at the first briefing. Yeah, but it, it was cool. And there's he's checking out her legs and everything else. It, it's he's 
he's Bond-like in some ways. <laughs> Eventually, Carswell takes Palmer into his confidence, and he shows him a manual that might be the key to what is happening here to the scientists. Palmer locks up this manual in his desk drawer at the office, and while driving Palmer's car, Carswell is killed. They thought it was Palmer. Palmer is now obviously very suspicious. He goes to retrieve the manual. It's gone. Someone on the inside knows what is happening, perhaps. A mole? Yikes, we haven't seen that ever before. A mole in a spy movie, no. Yeah, we won't <laughs> see that in the future either, will we? Oh, my God. Mission Impossible, <laughs> Bond, whatever, whatever. Palmer continues the mission trying to get information about this Grampy guy as other mysterious characters appear and are killed one way or another. Eventually, Palmer figures out who the bad guy really is and the world is saved. So, you know, things are going to work out okay. Well, it's a, it's a good thing because this was the first of three yeah. <laughs> of yeah. these Harry Palmers that they did. Yeah. So. Yeah, overall, it's an excellent movie. It's difficult to follow at times. It's, yeah, in fact, I want to kind of comment on that. So yeah. the, the opening scene, the pre-title yeah. sequence, I had to watch that three times before I figured out who was who. Yeah, and there is a pre-title sequence. <laughs> yeah, there is a pre-title sequence. Harry, but Harry Salsman did well. The, the characters aren't on screen for that long, but it's really important to know which each of the three characters, main characters that are in that scene, yeah. who they are. And they all dress very similarly. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, I had to watch that three times before I figured it out. Yeah. Oh, that's that guy. That's that guy. That's that guy. Yeah. So you so, might want to pay attention to this as you're watching the film and listen to this podcast and go rewatch the film if you've seen it already or watch it for the first time. At least you'll have a little more detail now of the kinds of things we're going to go over in this podcast. There's very dark overtones to this movie. This is more like real spy stuff than other spy franchises like Bond. It's dark. And it's interesting because this came out the same year that Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Yeah, that, and that's another one we're going to do. That's a great movie. And both of those, I mean, that one even has more realism to it than this yeah, one. Yeah. But, but I, it's not all the gadgety stuff or anything. It's just yeah. a I spy think movie. You get a good feel for this being a real kind of what spies really do kind of thing. It's dark, it's deep, it's secret, it's ominous, it's foreboding. It, it, there's a lot of tension and angst throughout the whole film, really. It's spy stuff, really, at its best. Like I said, they were trying to make him be the anti-Bond. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things he does that are kind of Bond-like. Yeah. Now, different sources have quoted different things and different variations on this phrase, the thinking man's Bond. Yeah, I, I saw the thinking man's it, Goldfinger or something. That's yeah, that was in Newsweek. Oh, okay. But then All there right. were a couple other sources. I think one of them attributed it to Harry Saltzman oh. saying that he was the thinking man's Bond. But again, I saw in a couple different places, slight variations on that. Yeah. But really trying to take the Bond character with a twist. Okay. So Len Dayton publishes The Ipcris File in 1962. This is the same year as the first Bond film came out, Dr. No. So both Dayton... Now, and actually, th that date's important. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later. But keep in mind, this was 62. Fleming in 63 released on Her Majesty's Secret Service. We're going to come back around yeah. to that. But yeah, yeah. pay attention to these dates as we're going through them in, in this discussion. Yeah. So... Here you have a situation where both Dayton and Fleming were writing at the same time. And That's true. Robert Ludlum, Jason Bourne novels were not released until 19, the 1980s to 1990. So Dayton may have had an influence on those novels and other movies as well. 
And Jean Le Carré was around this time as well. Yeah. Now, the name of Harry Palmer was has an interesting origin. And I've read a couple different things on this, but generally the, the story goes to Harry Saltzman said to him, what's the dullest name you can think of? Now, if we remember, Fleming said when he picked the name James Bond, yeah. it was off of a similar premise. So it's a very pedestrian, boring name yeah. that, that I can use here. Now, the funny thing is, Kane supposedly said Harry, which was Saltzman's first name. Yeah. So what's the most boring name you can come up with? Yeah. And then they supposedly picked Palmer because Kane said the most boring boy in school was a kid named Tommy Palmer. Yeah. And so, again, I've read this in different sources, slightly different interpretations of it. Yeah. Um, this, and I, one, this, I, I this one here, I think I pulled out of Wikipedia. Yeah, I think Harry Saltzman, I think, eventually said, well, you know, my name's really Herschel. Something I like that. No he said, idea. so I, I'm good with Harry. That's <laughs> 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 like, okay, good. All right, so there's several points we're going to talk about here. The stage that the Ipcrest file plays on is the Cold War stage. In 1965, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were building up powerful nuclear arsenals, and Britain was right there in the middle of it all. And World War II is still fresh in the mind. And in the Ipcris file, losing top scientists potentially to the other side is something Britain knew, as at the end of World War II, when top German scientists went to either the U.S. or the Soviet Union, this was a major, major threat. So they didn't want this happening again now. And heck, Von Braun, who came to the United States, who was a rocket scientist, by the way, for Germany. <laughs> he almost what are you, a rocket scientist? Yeah, he yes, almost single-handedly built the American space program. So in the Ipcris file, what was happening was not good. Well, yeah, and also in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of experimentation going on for mind control, oh, yeah. especially using drugs. Many of these drug experiments were conducted by the US CIA. Yes. One was called Operation Midnight Climax, which just cracks me up, where people were given LSD. Yeah. Then they were filmed from behind a mirror as they tried to make love in a room. Operation Midnight Climax. Yeah, they wanted to see what the drugs would do and whatever. Yeah, there's a great little book on that, too, called The CIA Manual of Trickery and Deception. It's actually good. We're going to go over some of the things in that and in a few other podcasts because it's a very good book. Anyway. Yeah, and there, there was one more project, MK Ultra. It was oh, all yeah. about mind control and what drugs might be used in interrogations. Yeah. And this stuff was really going on in World War II as well. Yeah. So, wow, there's some of that that happens in this movie mm -hmm. and pulling it out of the real world. Yeah, it's cool. Now, when you watch a Bond film, it's like, to me, it's like looking through an absolutely freshly cleaned window. <laughs> Crisp, bright, and... All that's going on, even though there are some ominous scenes in the, in the film, of course. The Ipcris file, on the other hand, is like, to me, like looking through a slightly filmy, dirty window. <laughs> Not the photography, uh, which I, I loved, but the overall feel of the film. It is far closer to real spying than the Bond franchise has portrayed in four films up to the point that this Ipcris file comes out. Yeah, it definitely has a grittier feel to it. Definitely grittier. On the DVD that I've got, there's a video of Sidney J. Fury, the director, and Peter Hunt talking. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today comes from that. Yeah. It's also available to watch on, on YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, yeah. It's a director's yeah. commentary, so it's the whole length of the movie. Yes. We'll, we'll cut it down for you here. So, so the director loved all these camera angles and how the, 
The movie was shot through windows, phone booths, armpits, and more. Yeah, I loved it. Harry Saltzman hated it, and he hated Fury. <laughs> he did. Uh, and so there was there was a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes with Harry and Fury, but Fury was winning out on how the film was being shot. But Salzman went to Peter Hunt, yeah. the editor, to, to confirm that Sidney's work was crap, that was his <laughs> words. But Peter Hunt said, no, it's actually yeah, yeah, good yeah. stuff. So after that, Harry didn't bother Sidney again yeah. <laughs> during the movie making. However, there's some other things other issues that happened with Harry and Sydney after all of this. Yeah. It wasn't a symbiotic relationship, I don't think. No. But, but all of these camera angles and stuff, I I personally thought there was too much of it. Too much of the weird angle stuff. Some of it I'm fine with, but it was like there wasn't a straight on shot in the whole darn movie, it didn't seem. Yeah. And so I liked it. So it's one of those that people seem to really like or didn't like much at all. And a lot of the comments that you read online from the people that don't like it are about the way the film was shot. Yes. Not about the content, but about the way the film was shot. Yeah. I know there's a lot of stuff about that. And that's actually one of the things I loved about the film. And here's why I, I loved it. I, I was thinking throughout the movie that the camera angles many times, like you said, looking through things like the windows, symbols, inboxes, that one shot of the inbox with the curve and everything. A lot of crazy angle stuff, almost Hitchcock-like, beyond Hitchcock-like. And through side windows of a waiting car, looking down through a hanging lamp from above to a body below and so on. I loved it. And Fury never said this, and I maybe I'm just making this up. <laughs> But I, I was thinking maybe that seeing through all of these things is like Palmer, who can see through a lot of the people and the situations that he's in to get to the real truth. And he does that relentlessly throughout the film, just like relentlessly there are these camera angles. So <laughs> I'm going with that. <laughs> well, no, okay. I. You and I have a slightly different opinion on these camera angles, but that's that's fine. That's the beautiful thing about yeah. watching something. We can each have our own opinion. Yeah. Now, one one of the things that was interesting to me about these camera angles was in the the podcast, the Double O Files. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever listened to those guys, yeah, good guys. They talked to the director of photography, Phil Mayhew, of Golden Eye and Casino Royale, and he Phil said that the Ipcrest file and the the camera angles and stuff and how they shot it were direct influence on how they filmed the pre-title sequence in the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Wow. So it's, some people love it, some people don't. They didn't use those angles for the whole movie, but they used it for the pre-title in Casino Royale. Yeah, we talked to Roberto Schaefer, the director of photography for Quantum of Solace, and in one of his movies, Monsters Ball, it was a lot of the same kind of different angles and so on. So it did influence other movies, I think, and... Again, I like it. So <laughs> yeah, now let me go to you. Just made a comment about seeing through things. Yeah. There's another thing that happens here. Harry's got glasses and Harry Saltzman didn't want him to have the glasses. Yeah. But Sydney wanted him to have the glasses. They're and nice so glasses. They're, they're nice glasses. French, French style glasses. Probably. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so they're, they're a thick tortoiseshell or whatever. Yeah. But there are some shots where Harry's got his glasses off and yeah. he doesn't see through things. Everything's fuzzy, and then he puts them on, and yeah. things become clear. Yeah, he takes them off so to clean them or whatever. Yeah, seeing through things. The so there you go. That supports my theory. Through. 
That supports yeah, my theory. Thank you, Tom. Exactly. You now agree with me. That's great. <laughs> no, I just think there's too much of it. I don't I don't oh, mind yeah. a few of those okay. shots. I just think it's too much. All right. There's one great shot with the glasses too that comes up in the in the film when he's with Gene Courtney, the woman agent, and at Palmer's flat. And she asks him, Do you always wear your glasses? And Palmer says, Yes, except when I'm in bed. And, and then she takes them off of him. It's she great. takes them off. Okay. I guess you're in bed. There you go. Ah. What's going to happen now? I love that one. That's a great one. All right. So when they were filming the movie, they were literally writing the script every day. That's, this is what was going on. So I think in Fury, in that commentary you're talking about, Tom, says something like, yeah, it was pretty much filmed in the sequence that the story unfolds because they were writing this stuff every day. They didn't know what they were doing the, the next scene. And so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it ab- absolutely is. It's Because uh, that's not normal. No. Normally you've got the script and they don't film it in order. Now, it did help that most of the scenes were filmed in the same two buildings. Yes, they did. They filmed a lot um, of it in the same two buildings. So that, that made it easier to, to be able to do that. Yeah, like the, uh, Harry's flat was upstairs, the offices were downstairs, and so on. So it's kind of yeah. cool that they did that, and, and that came out in that little commentary as well. One of the things I love about this story is how they deal with the tension and get you wrapped in and get you questioning what's going on. Mm-hmm. You're trying to figure out who's on Harry's side yeah, and, and who isn't. And and what's Harry up to, really? Yeah, what's what's Harry doing? We don't we don't know. This first so film. who's Ross's allegiance to? Yeah. Who's Gene Courtney's allegiance to? Yeah. What about Dalby and Jock? Yeah. So where wh- wh- where are these people aligned? And it isn't crystal clear throughout the movie. No, it's until not. You get and to the ending. So when you're watching the film, keep all of that in mind because you will have to keep it in mind because it's obvious that like who are these people and wh- whose side are they on? So the whole movie though. Tom is built around deception and intrigue and there there are reasons to suspect and perhaps not suspect many of the characters so for example there are reasons not to suspect Colonel Ross Palmer's boss in the beginning he seems to be a company man on Palmer's side and so Mm -hmm. on but he reassigns Palmer to a new division and sends him off to Major Dalby to his group why we wonder is he trying to get rid of Palmer who he knows is a very good agent, even though he is insubordinate, insolent, and all that, we wonder. There are reasons not to suspect his new boss, Major Dalby. Dalby's been around a while. Ross sent Palmer to him, so maybe he thinks Palmer can help him, and so on. Also, Dalby does assign Palmer to the case that they're working on, which is the case of the movie, trying to find Ratcliffe, the scientist, and track down this crampy guy. And... At a raid at the warehouse, he yells at his subordinates for starting the operation 10 minutes late. And so they missed the targets that they wanted at the warehouse. Yeah, but I actually think he was just trying to make it look good for his team. Maybe. Telling his team, hey, I'm behind you. Yeah, but we don't know. Now, remember, Palmer called for this operation at this warehouse thing, and he didn't really have the authority to do that. <laughs> Another Bond kind of thing. It's like, hey, this is what I, I think I should do, so I'm going to do it. And Palmer finds a bit of recording tape at the warehouse that hadn't been destroyed in this kind of stove fire. And it was still warm and all that. And Dalby is the one who points out that it says Ipcris on it. That kind of surprised me he came up with that. Yeah, it wasn't Palmer who said that. So that's a reason. It's like, okay, I'm not going to suspect 
Dalby. Jean Courtney, she's great, played by Sue Lloyd. We think she's on Palmer's side. But again, we're not sure if she works for Dalby or Ross or whatever. Regardless, she seems to be on Harry Palmer's side. Yeah, now this is one of those characters that kind of disappointed me a little in the movie because they really don't develop her at all. Yeah. And and she was good, and I would have loved to have seen more of the stuff she was doing Yeah, as part of this movie because, like I say, they, they just didn't develop her character much at all, and it was I was disappointed by that. Yeah, kind of like Paula in Thunderball, I think she could have had a bigger role. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing, yep, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And then we got now, a there, couple of other characters in this whole yeah. thing, right? And, and one that I just cracked me up was this guy who had his glasses taped right here yeah. in the middle. The typical Thick nerd glasses. of the 60s. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. And we don't know who this guy is no. or what side he's on. Keeps appearing. You see him lurking around a couple different times, mm-hmm. and you're like, who is this guy? Yeah, right. right? And it's the same thing a little bit later. You see there's a there's a black actor that's got a, a pipe. Right. And he's lurking around and you're like, who is this? You find out some kind of agent. These guys are, but who who are they? And we eventually do get there. Yeah. So we're just going to go through a few scenes here. There's a pre-title sequence. Of course there is one because Harry Saltzman's involved and they just did three Bond films with pre-title sequences. So we get one, two guys get into this car. One of them is reading this newspaper called the new scientist. They arrive at a train station looking for the compartment that is reserved for Mr. Radcliffe, who is actually the scientist. And he's one of the two guys. So he gets into this compartment, the other guy leaves, but the other guy notices that, oh wow, Radcliffe forgot his camera in the back seat of the car and he returns to the train and to his compartment and Radcliffe is gone. Yikes, it's someone else reading the new scientist. And when he draws the paper down, it's not Radcliffe, it's this other guy. And the train pulls out. The camera pulls back to the station and you see a body and I'm thinking, wow, they killed Ratcliffe, but that wasn't Ratcliffe. And that's, that's why I said I had to rewatch this a couple times. Yeah. Because it was actually this guy, Taylor, yeah. the guy who brought him the camera. Right. Right. So you need to watch it. You'll hear Taylor's names referenced a couple times in the movie, mm-hmm. but he's killed here. But if you're not really paying attention to the faces, yes, it's hard to tell that. Yeah. And a lot of the faces kind of look similar. So you, you, you do have to pay attention. So now you cut to Harry Palmer in his flat and the alarm is ringing, his alarm clock, and there's immediate suspense. That was the most annoying alarm clock. Yeah, and it goes on for quite a while. And, and now there's a title sequence. And the title sequence is cool. He's making coffee as Len Dayton's The Ipcris File pops on the screen. And Harry so Palmer we're getting into the titles now. Yeah, look into the titles, title sequence. And Harry Palmer looks tired as he gets up and gets dressed and ready for ready for the day. He's making his coffee and, and it's a process. Grinding the beans, steeping, pouring, and so on. It's it's easy not to pay attention to this, but it shows, I think, how meticulous Palmer is about some things. And much like Bond was with his food and drink and so on, you see Harry Palmer doing this with his coffee and you think well this meticulousness is going to spill over and carry over into his work just like it did for bond yeah but one big difference is bond's apartment is a lot nicer looking than harry's is oh yeah the- harry's <laughs> carries on this gritty feel a yeah. guy who doesn't have a lot of money and you get that you really get that, that feel out of that thing 
Yeah, there's no question. This is not Bond's Bond's flat. This is this is Harry's flat, and he is a different kind of looking character. Uh, he doesn't look like Bond with the glasses and everything else. And you didn't see a lot of lead actors in movies at that time with glasses, really. Right. Abs- absolutely. This looks like a good spot to wrap up part one of the Chris file. Yep. We'll pick up part two where we learn more about Harry Palmer's character and some key scenes to focus on. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. This has been Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. Please subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, right now. Have a movie in mind we should cover? Tell us about it on Twitter at at SpyNavigator. And if you're listening now, send us a message on Twitter and let us know where you're listening from.